are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffrath. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak with Arthur Kay, the founder and CEO of Skyrim. Arthur actually joined the podcast before at the time representing his company BioBean, coffee recycling company. And if you're keen to learn more about BioBean, actually check out episode 32 of Impact Hustlers and you'll hear Arthur and me talk about coffee recycling quite a lot, which was an amazing and interesting episode to host. As you may know from the name, Skyroom is actually building rooms in the sky and more specifically on the rooftops of existing buildings that are currently vacant. And it's predicted by 2050 that 70% of the world's population will actually live in big cities. So people are moving into big cities all the time. And at the same time, London is really a prime example of that, of an ever-growing city with property and rent prices increasing all the time. And with COVID right now, it's become clearer, I think, that some of the most needed key workers in the city such as doctors, nurses, and even firefighters cannot necessarily afford to live in central London, are often living outside of the city. That affects the quality of public services as well, not only their quality of life and their own mental and physical health, but also how quick can some of the key workers actually be where they needed to be. So Skyroom actually was founded by Arthur to solve this problem, building affordable housing on vacant rooftops starting in London. And the goal is really to get key workers to move back into the heart of the city. And it's great to have you on the show, Arthur, again. Michael, thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. No, really enjoyed to have you back all the time. And I'm keen to learn more about Skyroom because we've talked about it before every now and then. And I think in the very early days before the company even existed, I think you told me about it a little bit and uh, I was really keen to explore more. And I think... With Skyroom, you're really going back to your roots as an architecture graduate. So I'd love to learn a bit more of what motivated you to leave BioBean and launch Skyroom and go back to your roots in some way. No, great question, Mike. You're exactly right. So I trained as an architect and then set up BioBean actually just straight out of architecture school. And you've really seen Skyroom from concept to where we are now in terms of obviously the fast forward 2030 I mean, sharing the boardroom together there and, you know, having set it up together. It's really gone from, I guess, the nub of an idea probably, I guess, two, three years ago, almost, maybe two and a half years ago, to we launched our white paper with Richard Rogers and with UCL in September 2018. And now, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we're now in planning actually for our first homes and have got 15 homes in the planning process and a couple of hundred homes that will be delivered in the coming years and all of which will be homes for for key workers so it, we're at an incredibly exciting point and the key thing now for us is making sure we can execute on, on these plans and make sure that we don't get too ahead of ourselves too early 
Yeah. Can you share where those homes are being built yet? Like where, where in London are you going to focus on initially? Absolutely. So our model is, as you said in the intro, our model is all around how we can get London's key workers to live in the city they basically give their lives to support. And so, you know, 54% of all of London's key workers can't even afford to live in London. Of those ones who can afford to live in London, they're spending a huge amount of their days commuting. On average, a key worker's commute is over two hours. On average, they spend over 60% of their income on housing. So it's a really expensive, really time-consuming thing to do. And the interviews we've done with key workers often it just means that that quality of life is incredibly bad because often what they're doing is doing things like commuting from a central hospital. And because they're often you know, working shift patterns or unusual times of day, often means that those transport links are broken down and not working at that weird time of day. It means that they're spending a lot of that income on housing. And so it's a real labor of love. And our interest is trying to make sure that those people who are giving their lives for it can live near to where they work. And I don't mean on top of the hospital. I just mean within a you know, 15, 20 minute commute so they can you know, walk to work, cycle to work or get a piece of public transport to work, but not have a really complex commute. And that's kind of, I guess, the three elements of what Sky is trying to do is trying to build really high quality homes. They're designed by top architects who are working with amazing architecture practices all over London in, a, in great locations. So these need to be in the centre of the city. So it's your question about where they are. These homes are all in zone one or actually the edge of zone two and within a 10 to 20 minute walk of big schools, big hospitals. You know, one scheme will work within two minute walk of Trafalgar Square. A few of them are within just you know 10 minute walk of UCL. So really amazing central locations. And then the final piece being that they need to be affordable and sustainable. So they need to be you know, affordable to a key worker. So these can't just be you know, expensive luxury penthouses to live in because these are going to be incredible places to live. You know, views across London, beautifully designed homes. So you could see how these could quickly start selling for millions of pounds for an apartment. But we need to make sure that they stay affordable over time and then they're sustainable in terms of from the environmental perspective. So that's kind of... Uh, the uh, the model, and then yeah, these first few projects were delivering in the first, I guess, hundred or so homes are all in these very very central London locations. Wow, amazing! How do you ensure they're actually affordable, and do you prioritize key workers? Is there like some sort of kind of queuing system for those properties so that you make sure the right people move in? Or, I mean, I guess if I own one of these big buildings, I guess you're not owning the buildings that you built those housing that this housing on top of, right? Like. I probably want to maximize my profits, first of all. How do you make it affordable and prevent me from saying, oh, I'd rather have a luxury flat on top of this rooftop? Absolutely. And I guess your audience, Michael, is primarily for entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. And so for any key workers out there, the way you get one of the Skyrim homes is that, yeah, just sign up through our website, which is skyrim.london, and you can get added to the waiting list. And what we do is we simply market the home solely to key workers. So if you're a nurse a teacher a doctor a firefighter that's the way to get on the waiting list and you can get an amazing beautiful affordable home to grow up in and to, to live in as your maybe your first home or something like that in terms of how it works from a business model perspective because as you say why would you know how do we keep these affordable over time and if i'm a, just a greedy landlord how do i make sure that actually this is you know the best way to make money from my rooftop so the first question we work with different local authorities and what are known as registered providers so these are people who are who are regulated by the government to provide affordable homes to different categories in society. So we work, when we deliver the homes, we work with those registered providers who in turn rent those or sell those to key workers. So it's not Skyrim doing that directly. We work with this government-regulated organisation who then do that. 
In terms of why, as a as a landlord, would I be interested in that? Our model is not actually to go around working with the greedy private landlord that you're referring to, Michael. It's more actually around trying to find aligned partnerships with very, very, very large existing landlords through whom we can deliver jointly these projects. And interestingly, and I certainly didn't know this when I started working on the company, but interestingly, the biggest landlords in London are in fact registered providers. So the government is the biggest landlord in London, followed by local authorities, so different councils. It might be Camden, it might be Hackney, it might be Southwark, it might be Lewisham, it might be Greenwich. These landlords, these local authorities are huge landlords. For example, Southwark own 42% of the borough of Southwark. So huge amounts of land that they own within those areas. But also they are set up to try and deliver affordable and social homes to people within the borough. And so what we try and do is we try and find partners who own large swathes of the city with whom we can work to then deliver our product, which is these beautiful precision manufactured homes in the rooftops of their existing buildings. So it's really trying to find what I guess might be seen as a kind of a public-private partnership between us as a you know, technology and development company, you know, early stage startup technology development company, working with these very big landlords and trying to unlock that value. And, that, and you know, I guess the work that you and I both do at Fastwood 2030 is trying to find that value, which is not just economic value for us in Southwark in terms of the, the people doing it, but trying to deliver economic value, social value through homes to key workers, and then environmental value through making these homes incredibly sustainable, low carbon and not have a big impact on the environment. To make that happen, you're actually working with councils and government, right? You have had quite a lot of stakeholders that you need to manage to make these things happen, right? How does Skyroom relate to, let, let's say, council housing? And how do you see Skyroom in relationship to that? Do you think like there's like a new type of vision for council housing as well? Or is it an entirely different problem to solve housing for key workers? They're, they're different problems, but they're very much related. And I guess from an overarching perspective, it's that we recognise, the government recognises, every council recognises that we need to deliver more homes to tackle the overarching issue of housing affordability. So everyone within that, you know, whether it's one end of this spectrum, it might be the homelessness crisis. At the, other, at the middle end, it might be social rents and council housing. At the top end, it might be you know, just for people who are living in private rented sector or just buying a home. If you're a first-time buyer, it's just very expensive. So it's the whole spectrum of there are issues and challenges within that whole built environment industry. No company and no organisation can tackle all of it. We think there are amazing charities out there who are tackling the homelessness crisis. People like Shelter. Lots of you know, there's a, um, a number of different companies who are working different solutions there. Different councils and organisations working in social housing and, and council housing. And our niche is that currently there's no government program for key worker housing. There's actually nothing out there now that tries to fulfill this, what we think is a huge need. And so we really set up Skyrim saying there are solutions happening here, solutions happening here, and solutions happening here. But we're interested in this bit in the middle, which seems to have been overlooked. And that there are these in London, there are nearly 1 million key workers. So it's not a small market. There are a lot of key workers. These are people who are getting up crack of dawn and doing a seriously hard day's work. And they get, because they're paid by government, they often don't get paid that well. But also because they've got a salary and a job, they often can't, they often don't qualify for council housing. So they fall through this weird gap that they are paid enough and have a job. That means that they are in the, should be in the private sector, but actually aren't captured and picked up by some of this council housing. And so our idea was to try and fill this void and to try and to, you know, look up, you know, service, you know, we call it 
um, help those who help others, you know, look after people who look after us. And so you know, these key workers have a you know, <laughs> seriously tough time. And I think you know, when we wrote our white paper with UCL in 2018, key workers were quite a weird you know, group to be focusing on. A lot of people, even people in central government, even the mayor's office people would often say like, my key workers, that's an unusual group. But I think the one thing that's come from COVID, which has been beneficial to our business and what we're working on, has been that suddenly everyone's like, well, obviously you're doing key worker housing. Who isn't these days? I think so is now everyone now recognises you know, the whole clap for carers movement, et cetera, et cetera, recognises the huge debt that we owe our key workers. And this is one way amongst many that we can try and um, you know, say thank you. Yeah, tell us a bit more about that, actually, how COVID changed the trajectory of your business. You started about two years ago, I think, roughly. And what has changed now? And what is maybe also the problems that COVID has brought to the surface now, right? Like for decision makers to be like, oh, shit, actually, the doctor can't be quick in the hospital within like a few minutes because they live like two hours away from London or something like that. Is that problems they encounter or what's a typical problem? I think it's those sorts of stories that you hear time and time again. And I think with COVID, you know, this is what a lot of people are saying about it, but it hasn't created new problems. It's accelerated or enhanced existing underlying issues. And I think that's definitely the case with key worker housing. That it's not suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, this is now a problem. It's that this has always been really, really difficult and a really challenging thing for people to live you know, two hours away from work, spending over 60% of their income on it. And I'd say over half of uh, London's key workers not even living within the city. And because of that, they're now able to actually you know, accelerate some of those trends and try and you know, bring it to a fore. And so in terms of what that's generally meant in terms of for COVID and for Skyrim, it's meant that mainly policymakers are just more receptive to hearing the story. So one piece we've mentioned is actually a, a very pioneering piece of legislation brought forward by the new leader of Southwark Council, Councillor Kieran Williams. And he he's a pretty amazing politician, pretty inspiring guy. And he brought forward in March, he was one of the first councils in the UK to bring forward legislation saying that Southwark Council is now going to start delivering intermediate affordable housing for key workers. You know, to you and me, Michael, that sounds like a pretty unexciting statement, but actually from a council perspective, from the lead, he's now leader of the council to be taking such a progressive angle is an amazing step. And so, and you, if that was March 2019 or March 2018, that would never have happened. But, you know, someone like Kieran really leading the forefront in March 2020, saying we're going to try and tackle this problem in our local borough. And that's what we're really excited about, you know, finding politicians, policymakers like Kieran and others who are, who are you know, fighting the, fighting the fight for, for local key workers. Yeah. And when you implement these projects, you already mentioned you're working on a bunch of them. And what's your role exactly, right? Like you already mentioned, you're actually not a landlord, for example, right? Are you like an architecture firm? Are you like a developer? How can we put Skyrim into a box or does it not fit any? No, it does. So we um, refer to ourselves as a technology and an urban development company. And so this, what we provide is essentially we've a number of different technologies. We've, you mentioned we've had some support from government. So we've had some amazing support from People like Climate Kick, Innovate UK, UK Research and Innovation, Ordnance Survey, HM Land Registry. And all of that provides, essentially, has provided a suite of funding. And also with our engineers and our designers, we've developed a range of different technologies, a geospatial mapping technology, an exoskeleton technology, some precision manufacturing housing technology, all of which is proprietary Skyrim technology, which means that we can deliver unique offerings to the market in terms of essentially licensing and technology deals and consultancy deals for that. Separately, what we've done is we've actually raised 
a what is called the Key Worker Homes Fund, and that's over £100 million in funding that we raised from a large UK-based real estate company. And that money is going to be invested solely in key worker housing in partnership with registered providers. So these are local authorities and housing associations. So what this essentially allows us to do is to become, we have the technology on, but this now also means that we have this development on. We can now go forward and combine those two together and bring the technology and the capital and our development expertise to build these new homes. So that's the kind of our, we're a small business, as you know, Michael, but it's that kind of, we're trying to, trying to go, I think, big in terms of our offering. Because what we found in, in this particular market is that we're competing against very, very big organizations. You know, the, you know, it's against, you know, often the local authority will, instead of installing new homes for key workers, other um, council estates, they might just knock down the council estate and build a tower block there. And we're saying, actually, it doesn't need to be knock it down and build something bigger. That might take five years and it probably won't even end up being council housing. It'll probably just be private housing. We're interested in how you can actually find ways, again, it's this, you know, it's this fast forward 2030 shared ownership model to say, find ways that you can keep existing residents there, refurbish and improve their buildings, but also still unlock that value by building these new homes in the airspace above. Got it. Amazing. I mean, that fund is an amazing accomplishment. I don't think that anything like this exists before for key workers. I don't think so, right? First, as far as we're aware, first of its kind anywhere in the world. And that launches, um, you're getting the scoop here, my dear, because that launches officially in January 2021. And it launches with a big marketing program going to local authorities, housing associations, trying to get them involved in that design process. We've got some amazing commissioners of the fund as well who are going to be involved in selecting the best buildings and working with them to find the best places to fund as well. So it's it's an incredibly exciting time in terms of the company's trajectory. Amazing. I'd love to dig a bit deeper on the design principles you're using when you're designing uh, these homes, because I believe that's actually also sitting within Skyroom, right? Like you've really thought, rethought, how could somebody like uh, have a nice place to live on top of existing buildings? What principles are you following there and how do you make it a homely place? Yeah. So a number of different design principles. We do work with different architecture firms and interior design firms and engineering firms who work with us on the ground for it. But from, I guess, a, a high level with the Skyrim concept in terms of that home design is, first of all, they're what we call precision manufactured homes. These are homes which aren't, you know, typically when you're building a home, almost all homes in the UK are built with basically a bunch of materials and a bunch of blokes turn up to site and build a building. And that's how almost everything happens. Our approach is saying, especially because remember, these are existing buildings that exist there currently, and they're very high up. And on top of that, they're people who live or work in those buildings. So what we do is we instead build the homes off-site in a factory in the UK up the supply chain, where you can build these homes. And because they're built off-site, it means you can build them using robots, using very, very, very little waste, using really high-quality material, you know, all built in a safe, sheltered environment, and then bring them to site and then crane them onto the top of the existing building. That means that you bring your disruption on site down from you know, building a home traditionally takes you know, one, two, three years, depending on it. But if you can do it like this, it might take several months to build, but you're building off-site in a factory, and the time on-site is literally sometimes days. Wow. So it really reduces that site time. The other principle is around looking at how we can make these homes as environmentally friendly as possible. So that's around, again, not only construction method, but also use of materials, making sure that they're all circular, that they can be recycled, they can be reused, and also that they're what's referred to as self-finishing. So instead of 
having a wall which is built up as kind of wood, plasterboard, plaster, and then a paint or a, a final finish, simply use the material which is the wall itself. So it might be a ply wall, for example, and then use that as the, the finished product. And then finally, building the home to a passive house standard. So this is the highest environmental standard any home can be built to currently. That comes with a whole bunch of different regulatory and technical compliance elements with it, but really trying to make sure that they're incredibly well insulated, airtight homes, etc. And that precision manufacturing piece means that you can do that. But overarching piece with it all, though, how it's just trying to make them, you know, these are all technical things that, you know, you and I get excited about, Michael, but the most exciting thing about, most important thing about all of this is not whether it's passive house standard or use this widget or that. It's around are these nice and comfortable places to live. And so our thesis is make homes that anyone will be proud to live in. And too often we think if something's affordable, they think it's therefore cheap and it's crap and we don't really, it's like it's low quality. And actually our idea has been that actually good design doesn't have to cost the earth. Or, you know, there's a great quote, uh, which is, you know, nothing's too good for ordinary people. And it's trying to say, actually, if particularly what we're doing is we're essentially doing these designs and repeating them several times. So this design doesn't have to be incredibly expensive. It can just be high quality design. And because the amazing thing about all of these homes is that they're up in the sky, they are in on the rooftops of existing buildings. And the benefit of that is you get mm. amazing views. And so you know, these are, some of these homes are, I know I mentioned the one earlier, it's in two minute walk from Trafalgar Square. You, know, you can literally from the rooftop of the building, these can be affordable homes to queue up. It's, and from the rooftop of the building, you have a view over Parliament, over Nelson's Column, over Trafalgar Square with big open windows. So it's amazing places. Again, one of the projects we're working on down in Bermondsey, again, same idea. You can incredible views up to the Shard, across to the City of London. So it's trying to celebrate the obvious things. You know, it's natural light, it's good views, it's nature, etc. But doing so in a way we're not kind of doing, you know, a kind of a Russian oligarchs penthouse with kind of uh, platinum walls and purple furniture. It's trying to keep it really simple, high quality materials and, you know, less is more um, is, the, is the approach we're, we're taking. Oh, that sounds really beautiful. I got to, I think, retrain and become a doctor or firefighter I think, <laughs> and, and apply. Well, honestly, genuinely, Michael, that's part of the ambition. But the idea being that, you know, these people are the idea around why QWeb is came from they're the most trusted and the most respected people within our society. So teachers, doctors, firefighters, if you look at any profession and look at their trust rating as rated by other people, or if you look at their, how respected they are by other people, or even indeed if you look at the most aspirational professions from a 15-year-old, what do they want to be when they grow up? All surveys point to that key work at the top of those lists. Teachers, doctors, firefighters, nurses are all well up there. And interestingly, nurses have actually got the highest trust rating in the UK at 94%. So pretty good. Wow. All right. I think let's move on into your entrepreneurial journey, especially with Skyroom. I mean, your entrepreneurial journey didn't start with Skyroom, but I'd love to focus a bit more on like some of the lessons learned and the difficulties with building a company like this. And I'm sure the set of challenges you're facing now are completely different to what you faced in Biobean and they're definitely completely different to any sort of software startup that's maybe not dealing with brick and mortar and councils and governments. So what would you say throughout the journey since starting Skyroom has been like some of the biggest lessons learned or one of the mistakes you've made that you didn't quite realize? Like what can you share with entrepreneurs that are looking to get into a similarly complicated space? Great question. I think the starting with the commonalities, I think, between you know the businesses and also about dealing a bit with Fast Forward 2030 and, and other 
you know, entrepreneurs who, who we both know, is that things sadly take a very, very long time. And even, I guess, to be an entrepreneur, you have to almost by definition be an optimist um, and think that the world can be a better place and that you can help it be so, <laughs> which is quite an optimistic and egotistical starting point. And so I think recognizing that even if you lay out what you believe to be a conservative plan, that it's going to be still some way off. And so setting out with the understanding that things will take longer and not having that be existential. So building in some contingency to that is the, I guess, my biggest lesson. And tied to that, I think, is the idea around patience. And I am a very impatient person and having to deal with some of these much, much longer term projects and thinking through in not in weeks or months, but in years and sometimes even projects in decades is a huge um, a mind shift I'm still trying to get my head around. I'm 29 years old now. I'm uh, you know, two years into my second business. And you know, it's now starting to realize that this is a decades-long endeavor, not a weeks or months kind of thing. So that's the hardest thing I think I've found to start getting my head around on there. And I guess that's to an extent been compounded by covid and there's a quote I really like from JFK as part of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I spoke to my team about um, just as we're kind of going into COVID and understanding the level of intensity and time that we're going to be going through. And that's, you know, we recognize that time's going to play a big factor here, but to use time as a tool, not as a couch. And what that means is saying, don't, the fact that things take longer doesn't necessarily mean we can either sit back and relax and just wait for it to happen, or indeed that we need to get angry and kind of depressed about the whole thing it's more saying it will take time acknowledge that recognize that you know definitely try and keep things moving and push them but try and find things that that you can be doing helpful along the way that keep the thing churning because particularly with projects like i mentioned earlier that we have a technology arm to the business and in fact one of the reasons we developed that because we recognized early on that building homes takes a long time to do just through the planning process anyway so we've been in a planning process just on one building for over a year and a half. And that's just you know, waiting. That's having done all designs, got it all ready, submitting it to local authority, and then waiting. Huh. question is, do you just wait and twiddle your thumbs and do nothing? Or can you find other ways to be creative, to think about how you can fill your pipeline going forward, to be able to you know, make an impact and generate revenue in the meantime through these additional offerings to the market? And that's really where this dual approach of the fund of the development arm of the, of the technology business all kind of come together. It's that trying to think in this longer term approach, but also this, yeah, use time as a tool, not as a couch. Wow, that's a really good lesson. I think uh, combining the patience with still moving fast on everything that you can influence, right? And not lying back and waiting, right? So this is a really good lesson. How did you go about actually finding the right investors for this and uh, really looking at the long-term ambition of this? I'm sure for many investors that traditional VCs that invest in software all the time, there's so many scary parts of this, right? And I'm sure there's probably just a subset of investors that are like, wow, this is a moonshot project, like, let's do it. And with all the challenges that are included, let's go for it, right? Like, how did you go about that? Yeah, great question. So we took a very, very unusual approach, and particularly from definitely not typical for the, I guess, the listeners of this podcast. I think I may have tried almost every funding method between Skyrim and Fossil 2030 and Biobeam. I think we've pretty much done everything under the sun in terms of funding. So Biobeam was funded through 
angel investors, crowdfunding, grant funding, and venture capital firms, and also corporate venture capital firms. So a real range of funding there. Fast forward 2030 has been essentially bootstrapped, and it's been funding through support from the university and through some grant funding and some sponsorship. And then Skyrim, we actually took the approach, which is so unusual for business these days, and particularly in our shoes, of bootstrapping and funding it ourselves through paying clients and through essentially making it a profitable business. So actually in our first year, we were profitable, and this year we were profitable, and we're hopefully going to be profitable um, for a long time to come. So the model basically is that we then did separately raise this fund, which is a separate entity, which is a you know, ESG private equity real estate fund, which will invest in projects. And that's almost, is a, think of it almost like a, you know, to use an analogy, that is a venture capital fund investing in startups, equivalent to, but it's a private equity real estate fund investing in real estate projects. But yeah, so we essentially just chose to say, actually, investors have a whole bunch of value to bring. And that comes in both the form of contacts, advice and capital. But they also take a lot of equity and also a lot of control. And our view, particularly understanding that this is going to be a much longer term endeavor than I say most VCs uh, are on a, despite what they tell you, are on a, they've got their own pressures. They've got a fund which is typically between seven and 12 years in terms of life cycle, where there may be four to six year active investment periods. And so they've got their own pressures that they need to hit. They need to get their returns. And if you're one of the, you know, the model, as you know, basically works on you have two or three outliers within each portfolio and you double and triple and quadruple down on them and let the others go to go to zero. And we believe that this is too, for us, this is too big an idea and too important an idea to you know, give away that, that control at this, at this stage of the business. And so, yeah, we focus on building it ground up profitably and uh, long may it continue. And that's really been a testament to not me, actually, but two of my, I've got two co- co-founders in the business, James Gerard, who's a seriously talented, he's our chief investment officer, incredibly talented fundraiser, a businessman, real estate developer. And then Lewis Kinnear, who is an architect by training, um, incredibly sophisticated, mature, long-term thinker. And that kind of combination of the three of us, you know, Lewis, James, and myself, has meant that we can really actually step back a bit and say, what does this business deserve? You know, it's actually not really about us. It's what does this business deserve? What does this idea deserve? And how can we make sure that happens? And funding can come with strings that may compromise that vision. That's great to hear. On that, like, what are you focusing on when you're bootstrapping the contracts you're doing already? Because obviously there's this long-term goal and the projects that you're developing are those already monetized or are you like doing stuff on the side basically to bootstrap? How do you manage that? Is it, no, yeah, <laughs> such good questions, Michael. You know, clearly, it's, it's always interesting when you have an interviewer who really gets the nuts, you know, who's entrepreneurial themselves and runs businesses and gets the nuts and bolts of it because yeah, it does make a big difference compared to a journalist who kind of conceptually can talk about it, but yeah, the, the real questions. So we, the hard thing for us was how can you exactly, how can you correlate your long because the last thing anyone wants in a business and why venture capital is helpful, it allows you to focus. You know? It means you can just do one thing and focus on that without having to worry about how you pay the rent or how you can keep the light on in the office or whatever it ends to be. And so the challenge for us was how can we correlate the need to generate revenue, but also this long-term thinking and make sure we don't get drifted off track by an exciting thing over here, which might make us £100,000, but isn't actually going to tie into our long-term ambitions. So what we've essentially worked to do is find really forward-thinking partners, some of these big landlords to whom I was referring to earlier, and find ways to work with them 
through the early stages of a project, but to monetize those early stages. So work with them as what's referred to in the industry as a development manager. So essentially, we run that early stage of the process. And sometimes we'll also license in our technology through what we refer to as geospatial mapping studies or implementation studies to then prove that opportunity. And that's, in layman's terms, what does that look like in terms of our business? That looks like a very large landlord will come to us and say, we know that something can be done with our buildings. We're not sure where our buildings are or which ones will work and which ones won't. Can you do a survey, a study across our portfolio, which might be a thousand buildings, to say which ones of these could be suitable for airspace development and which of them is not going to be suitable? And for the ones that are suitable, what does that look like and how could that be unlocked? So we start off with doing those studies saying, this is possible, this isn't possible, this is possible, this isn't possible. And we use our geospatial mapping technology to to do that, and a whole bunch of different criteria feed into that. And then from that, we then will develop massing studies and essentially do some more technical design, understand the structure, understand the local residents, et cetera, et cetera, to then say, okay, you showed us a thousand buildings, 900 or you know, 850 don't work, 50 are marginal, but these 100 would be perfect. And then we may develop some of those to then become projects that then feed into the pipeline. So that's the kind of model. We, you know, it's easy for me to say now, but that took a lot of, thinking and work and trying to, you know, that hard bit up front to work out how we can retain that equity in the company, retain that ownership and control, but also make some revenue in the short term to be able to, you know, keep the lights on. Amazing. I'm a big fan of that approach. And it's great to see that even companies that solve like this type of problems that are considered moonshot or maybe a bit more out of the conventional uh yeah you're not uh starting a corner shop but you're actually solving something that hasn't been done before can still bootstrap i think it's really amazing to see we're running it out of time almost so i have one more question for you about the future of skyroom and the future of the world or society and that's all about how do you think the world will look like in about 10 years if skyroom succeeds So there's an interesting thing about cities and the future that we always think the future is a long, long way away and it's going to be very different from what it is today. So my answer is probably a bit banal, but the reality is that of any developed city in the world, about between 80 and 90% of it already exists in terms of it's already been built. And so over the next 30 years, things will change, but they're going to be pretty incremental and it's very, very, very unusual for there to be even, you know, we think of some revolutions, but really the actual fabric through which we live in doesn't change and hasn't really changed significantly over the last 10,000 years in terms of the day-to-day functioning of most people's lives. In terms of Skyrim and how we hope to, even if it is we're talking about that fraction of a percent difference that we want to make in the world or kind of tilt that we want to make into the future, it's all around making cities healthy, happy and wealthy places to live and particularly for key workers Our passion for key workers isn't just around trying to give beautiful homes to doctors. It's the difference if they come to work feeling, and it is feeling, because it's not just all stats and facts, feeling well-rested, happy, well-looked after, respected, having come from a beautiful home that they can afford to live in and are walking into work for 15 minutes. And the effect that that has on the 50 patients they look meet, their 20 colleagues and 50 patients they meet that day is enormous. And what we're interested in is how can that influencing and making the lives of, it may only be 10,000 key workers, you know, maybe 20,000 key workers. It's not going to be 
London has a million key workers. We sadly cannot solve that for a million key workers. But if we can begin that process of solving it for thousands or tens of thousands of key workers, giving them affordable, beautiful, sustainable homes to live in near to where they work, that would be amazing. And I think I truly believe the cascade effect that would have in terms of their quality of life and in turn our quality of life would be immeasurably different. So that's the ambition. And overall, it's to try and make London, because we are based in London and our focus as a business in London, to not even make London, to continue London being the best city in the world. Amazing. Thank you very much for joining me today again for the second time. And it's been really inspirational to listen to you and about your approach to this. And I wish you all the best for with Skyroom. Michael, thanks so much for having me and it's great to be back on the podcast. Hope to be back again for a third time. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The third business, but that may take a longer while as you're quite focused on Skyrim right now. Thank you very much, Arthur. Thanks. Cheers, Martin. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.